Assalamualaikum folks, hope you're all well. You're listening to the Muslim Centric Podcast with your host Amanda Rani. We've got a really special episode for you today. It's one that was recorded on the eve of Ramadan 2020 and it was a conversation organized by Sheikh Ruzwan Muhammad from the iSyllabus program with one of the most famous Muslim scholars in the world, Imam Zaid Shakir from the Zaytuna College in the United States of America. You can check out the video for this interview on the iSyllabus UK Facebook page and the title is Religious and Social Imperatives of a Ramadan Like No Other the age of COVID-19 and it's a fascinating and inspiring discussion on how we reflect on our current circumstances and how to maximise this Ramadan like no other. I really enjoyed this interview because it was almost like listening into two great sheikhs having a discussion on these topics and they reflect on so many things and even their insights and their thoughts on these particular issues is pertinent. I especially like Imam Zaid's um, discussion about activism where he says you know this shouldn't stop and people have to carry on in the, during this really unique circumstances but this will be in a very different way than what we are used to but this whole lockdown is a real opportunity for us to recalibrate ourselves morally spiritually and physically so we really hope you enjoy this podcast um, and courtesy of iSyllabus and Naim Ali who's one of the people who put this together Remember to also tune into other episodes from the podcast and like and share and follow us on your podcast platforms, particularly if you're listening on Apple and Android. And you can follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you just search for Muslim Centric, you can find us there. So hope you're having a great Ramadan. Stay tuned for further episodes from the Muslim Centric podcast. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Everybody here and also our dear um, guest and um, scholar here, Imam Zaid, who is um, somebody who we all know and inshallah we have great esteem for in, in, in the UK specifically. I know he's very famous in the USA, but in the UK, um, I think we we really look up to him, and, and one of the things that remind you know one of the images of 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 Imam Zaid that I remember very clearly is coming to Glasgow and very much being part and parcel of the society and helping people and being concerned about the people, which gives an impression of the type of person you're talking about. But also, despite that kind of personal kind of connection that we have with him, he's also the co-founder of the Zaytuna College in California, which is very much. Um, at the forefront of providing Islamic education um, for the next generation in terms of the needs of society as well. But you're also, you know, Imam Zaid, you're very well known as being a very involved in activism in terms of the issues that the community is involved in. And so it's very, um, from, our deep, from the deepest part of our hearts, we are very much acknowledging your presence here and it's very much um, something that we thank you for. Um, you obviously are very well aware of the co current context that we're living in. It's been called unprecedented. That word is an English word which has been used a lot, but the word now has, has really been used in its fullest sense. Unprecedented in terms of the way the West is dealing with the, the issues that they have in terms of COVID-19. Also unprecedented in terms of perhaps for Muslims the fiqh of the scenarios that we have to deal with, such as Tarawih, such as Jumu'ah. I mean, we were planning a, a trip to Umrah and a whole group of 40 people had to cancel it, you know, a month and a half ago. So this is very much unprecedented to the point that you have scholars searching the books of history for times when, you know, the Hajj was cancelled or there was no Tawaf or there was no Jumu'ah prayers or there was no congregational prayers. So all of a sudden there's been all this activity, which I mean, from my, from my experience, has been unprecedented for, for people, um, especially scholars. But I think... What we want to look at in this specific um, session with you um, is to look at the social and religious imperatives that we have, not in terms of this situation we're in, which is COVID-19, but in, in the context of Ramadan itself, because Ramadan, as you know, um, has, a, has a religious, very strong religious aspect, but has a very strong social aspect as well, a community aspect. So. How do we start to engage with this question? We're in the gates of Ramadan. You know, some countries are already announcing Ramadan. So we're going into an unprecedented Ramadan as well. So how would we deal with that religiously and also in terms of the social imperative? 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to all of the wonderful brothers and sisters uh, in Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And I don't know if you're still united after Brexit, but anyway, uh, and, and throughout the world and other, others who might be tuning in here in the United States, uh, Alhamdulillah, I think that uh, by the grace of Allah, our religion is uh, very practical and it's a religion that uh, has built into its very structure the ability to accommodate anomalous situations. And so I think that this Ramadan, as opposed to really uh, stressing us based on what we, our inability to do what we might be normally accustomed to, I think it provides us an opportunity to put emphasis on those aspects of Ramadan that are sometimes de-emphasized. Uh, so if we start with the prayer, for example, we know that uh, before Umar عن, gathered the people behind uh, Ubay bin Kaab that they were praying in many different jamaas throughout the uh, masjid. And, uh, and gauging by the number of sahab, I'm sure even some in the more distant uh, places might have even been praying in their homes. And so the innovation, as Omar said, yani, what a wonderful innovation this is. The innovation is gathering the people behind one imam. And so now we just go back to the awesome. We go back to the original situation that prevailed before Omar, uh, temporarily, not, not permanently, but so now we have an opportunity for these many jamaas, an opportunity for husbands and uh, sons who are studying Quran to lead their families in Tarawih. And I think that that's beautiful. So instead of one big light radiating out into outer space from the masjid, you have many different lights from all these different homes where the jama'ah is held. So the jama'ah has not ended. The jama'ah uh, in the masjid, some, some parts of the world perhaps uh, isn't going to happen, but the jama'ah in millions of homes is going to be happening. And I think this is an opportunity for us to really cement very strong bonds of love and faith within our families. Because maybe normal circumstances, especially I think uh, our sisters will greatly benefit. Because number one, uh, many sisters, not all, but some, some uh, husbands, I'm not saying this is wrong, but burden their wives with making these huge iftars. Uh, and so the, the sisters, some instances is in the kitchen all day, uh, toiling, and when it's all over, there's a mountain of dishes. And so she's really missing the, the richness of Ramadan that, that her husband or perhaps her children are enjoying. So they're running off to the masjid. She's exhausted. She's been in the kitchen all day. She's looking at a mountain of dishes. Now it's just a family to, to cook for. And so maybe the, the husband, the son, now they're leading tarawi. Now the, the wife, and the mother can participate fully in that. So that, that's a great blessing. And so I think we, we should, uh, again, that example is not universal, but it does happen often enough so that it will resonate with a lot of sisters out there. And so we, we have an opportunity to get a different flavor from this Ramadan. Again, uh, so many of our, our young children, they're studying Quran. Then, and the husbands know something of Qur'an, even the, the way that many Turkish masajid, again, not all, but I've actually spent a couple Ramadans in Turkey. They, they do the last 20 surahs of Juz Amma. And so in every household, there's somebody that knows the last 20 surahs of Juz Amma, and they do it every night. 
and and so the, I think what teen was Zaytun to Surah Al-Nas, and the, that minimally could be happening throughout our, our community. Uh, one more thing I'll say on that in that regard. So if that were to happen, it's not something novel in terms of all these different tarawih prayers instead of one big one. The one big one is the innovation. And Taban is an innovation that's thabit, is this is our practice, you know, uh, this is our practice, but in an extenuating circumstance, forced to go back to the original state, there might, we might temporarily, in the context of this emergency, we might find tremendous benefit in that. One more thing is that when you talk about isolation, uh, a big part of Ramadan, again, that many people reject, uh, or not reject, but neglect sometimes, is etikaf. So isolation is an integral part of the sunan of Ramadan. And, and so being isolated in our, in our homes, in a sense, is providing us the benefit from the breaking the habit of the nafs. And in that, there should be great spiritual benefit, because as we know, the, the scholars of, of spiritual training, one of the things they say is opposing the habit of the nafs is the essence of its cure. And so the, the habit of going to the masjid, of course, there's tremendous benefit and virtue, but it is a comfort zone for, for most of those who regularly go there. We see the same people. We spend time before the prayer chit-chatting. We spend time after the prayer chit-chatting. We spend time commuting to and back and forth uh, to the masjid. And so now uh, that ability to chit-chat with our buddies that we congregate with at, with at the masjid is not there. And so not, not having that comfort, uh, the <clears throat> iftars in the masjid is something uh, we like. There's something we like again. It's a, it's more social than spiritual, and so not having that social comfort, and not having the nafs in its comfort zone, and disrupting that temporarily, I, I think is going to be something that has great benefit, and it will put us close as a community to the spirit of etikaf, which is a great part of Ramadan, to begin with. So I mm. think definitely. There are breaks in the, the normal routine, but I think those breaks, which are necessitated by an, an, uh, an emergency and potentially very dangerous situation, will have great, great benefit for our community. And when we go back, they say things are not appreciated until they're lost. I think when, inshallah, next year, we go back to our normal routine, I think we'll have a great, much greater appreciation for the masjid a much greater appreciation for Tarawih as we normally uh, undertake it. But we will also have a, a, a much greater appreciation of the need for us to everyone to be prepared to lead their family in Tarawih to great longer or, or shorter uh, prayer times based on the ability of, of the men and the young men and uh, older men in the household. Um, I think the idea of, of breaking habits actually people should take note of. I think people are listening should take this the, take note of the idea of breaking the habit. Because I was in Turkey for about three years and I remember my first Ramadan there, um, I got ready to go to Tarawih and I was ready for a good one hour, two hour session in the mosque. And I got in, in 15 minutes I was outside the door and I just thought, why, why are they doing this to me? I was looking forward to you know, a beautiful recitation for an hour, hour and a half. And I realized... The habit is minds which needs, to, which needs to be broken. And I think a lot of people need to underline that, that point you made, which is breaking the habit. Just because you've been doing it, you need to stop and think why you're doing it. I think one of the points you mentioned about um, frequenting the mosque and people meeting people that they know, I think there's a, there's a big issue. I, I'm sure you're aware of this. In America, it's probably a bigger issue is people that are marginalized from the community in general feel that marginalization much more in the month of Ramadan. And I remember when I was in, in, in studying abroad, the day of Eid was very, very lonely because all the students went back to their hometowns and you were left with the four walls of your room and nobody to socialize with. And it was a feeling that you were, an, you were a minority, 
so all the students, the Syrian students or the, or the Yemeni students or the Turkish students went back home and you were left by yourself to kind of eat basic food. But I think there's people like converts, there's people like the youth as well feel sometimes marginalized from the mosque spaces, um, females as well. Um, you know, all these people in this Ramadan, it'll probably be much more difficult. So how do, we, how do we mitigate that? How do we create a virtual space where they can come together and they can, we can remain in touch with them, not just as people that are part of the society, but as people that are partaking in Ramadan? Yeah, that's an excellent question and a, a very uh, compassionate consideration. I think that we just reach out and include people. We can have... Uh, Convert conversation every evening after the tarawih. Tarawih. I wouldn't recommend personally the online tarawih. I, I think that's a a bad habit that people might continue with <laughs> when things go back to normal. I, I think, but I would say, you know, let's start a, a convert conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, reaching out to those we know in the community who might be new. As, as I said, sisters, I think, are, are going to be happy because family members are there with them. They're not left staring at a mountain of dishes while everyone else runs off to the masjid. And so I think they'll look forward to that as, as opposed to the normal routine. They have everyone there in the family, maybe doing, praying together, maybe reading something from... Uh, one of the translations of the Quran and whatever uh, language everyone understands or uh, listening to something recorded, following something that there's so many of these online things going on, following some online Ramadan lesson. So I think that our sisters are going to be much more, ha much happier than they are during a normal Ramadan because of their ability to really be with the family and to partake on, uh, in some of the spiritually enriching things that others in the family uh, are partaking in. And that if it were a normal situation, wouldn't necessarily be the case. Converts, I think, is a question of reaching out. I think I, I, I just gave myself a great idea. I'll start my own convert conversation and invite, you know, put it out there, invite any converts every day to tune in, and we'll just have a little, a little lesson and a little chit-chat, inshallah, question and answers. So I think there are a lot of creative ways. I also think we need to educate uh, our community, especially newcomers, uh, into the reality that the essence of this religion is struggle. I think sometimes we adopt uh, uh, ways of looking at the world, worldviews, practices, attitudes that really aren't rooted in Islam. And so the idea that everything's going to be easy, that everyone's going to do everything to accommodate you, uh, it's, it's not, no, shaitan's going to do everything to distract you. And you have to strengthen yourself. And how can I help you to strengthen yourself and not how can I be a crutch for you? And I think when I converted, that was pretty much the message. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're on your own. We didn't have all these institutions. There was no internet. Uh, and so you had to figure out a way to make it work. And I think even though that sounds harsh in today's uh, day and time, but I think it, it actually strengthened us and it made our faith stronger and it made us more resilience, more resilient uh, to the face of, in, in the face of difficulties and hardships. And so, you know, Allah would told constantly in the Quran that we're going to be tested, we're going to be tested, we're going to be tested. And so I think this is a test that converts or sisters or all of us have to endure and understand the, the way through test is through patience. And, and the two are, are linked throughout the Quran. So we just work through it and we're patient in dealing with the hardships and difficulties that come. So that's not to say that we don't make efforts to reach out, but I think part of our reaching out has to be educating uh, our community into the nature and essence of, of our religion. When I, when I converted, I, I mentioned this often, perhaps you gentlemen have heard this, uh, that 
Islam was defined universally as uh, submission to the will of Allah. Like what is Islam? Submission to the will of Allah. And, and so in other words, you had to take what you want and what you like and put it on the back burner and engage in what Allah desires and what Allah loves. And now almost universally, Islam is defined as peace. It's like the religion of peace. Like everything's going to be nice and peaceful. There are not going to be any turbulent storm clouds uh, and storms and, and coronaviruses to mess you up from time to time. And so I think we have to get more considering where people are. So I'm not saying doing this in a harsh way, but really getting back as, as we, the, the Christians say in the, here in the United States. I don't know what they say in Scotland. I never visited a church there. But growing up as a, as a Christian in a Christian family, they, they say, give me that old time religion. And so I think we need a little bit of that old time Islam. And I think it will make us more resilient in the face of these kind of challenges and crises. Mm -hmm. So as we reach out to converts or other marginalized uh, segments of our community, part of our outreach, I believe, has to be educating them and letting them, the, them know that <clears throat> sometimes it's tough. And in dealing with those difficult times, your reward is multiplied immensely. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Uh, the the idea of convert conversation is is actually an an excellent copyright patent you can do yeah. that you heard it here first so if anyone infringes on my copyright you got and your recording also so we got it covered inshallah so i mean one of the things we've done here in in, in scotland is we've we've started a ramadan virtual hub which is an app which has an iftar show a live iftar show it has a nighttime tafsir lesson it also has a section called Hidden Voices, which is all about people who are marginalized, giving them a place where they can converse and listen about things. You know, people are still suffering from domestic violence. I know probably in America, the figures are like they are in the UK. And now it's going through the roof because yeah, it, the abuser now is trapped in the, how neither one of them can escape. So either mm -hmm. usually it's a guy, not always. I know a friend, very close friend, his wife, like, beats him up uh, so but usually it's it's the man but the guy's going out of the house half of the time and if it's a really bad situation a lot of times the, the sister can take refuge with some relatives or some families in some instances and now they're all trapped in the house so the underlying problems that lead to to the abuse and the tension and the stress and is, is just amplified and so most definitely, I think that's, that's an excellent uh, program that, that you're referring to. Yeah, so, so what we did is we got people who we felt were the hidden voices, people stopped suffering from addiction, people that perhaps on, on, the, on the outskirts of the community, such as people that are converted and they don't feel that they have a voice, and women in a situation where they're being um, deprived of the kind of love and affection that they deserve in, in a safe household. Um, so there's all these people breathing. I think one of the issues here is Muslims are not able to breathe in the way they were able to breathe. And just how, how do you come to terms with death of a loved one when you can't attend the, 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 the janazah and you can't meet the person on their deathbed? So what we did is basically create a, a, a virtual space on an app which allows you to, you know, kids, you have kids classes on that, you have sure. reminders throughout the day, but you have this place where people who are vulnerable can come and I think that's this idea of Ramadan being a communal experience, the food, iftar, feeding the, feeding the poor, giving your zakat to other people, coming together for the taraweeh, that's all a communal event. And that's all of a sudden been taken away from us. And that's one of the things you were talking about at the beginning of, we go back to the original way of doing the taraweeh and the kind of basic, simple aspects of our faith. But I think... Um, there's an issue that you were talking about. I think you were, we spoke about this before we came online. Which Can I interject is, something very quickly? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, very quickly. Just to just show the, the breadth of the prophetic practice uh, in terms of the janazas and not being able to attend. And, and mm -hmm. so we, we know the hadith of the uh, woman, uh, radiallahu anha, who used to sweep the Prophet's masjid 
-hmm. And then he noticed she was gone and they said she passed away and they buried her. And the Prophet said, why didn't you guys tell me? And then he went to the grave after she was buried and after the others had prayed on her and then he prayed. And so we, we can go to the grave afterwards and we can make prayers and we can visit. And, and this is something that the Prophet did وسلم, when he wasn't able to attend because he wasn't informed. Uh, in that circumstance, but he did subsequently pray. And so I think there, we, we have a Salat al-Ghaib. And so the, the family members, again, I think this is a, a time for the family members to really step up. This family members can pray Salat al-Ghaib right there in their homes without the presence of the body. And this would be an instance where it wouldn't be superfluous. It wouldn't be like, Two million people pray for Sheikh Fulan min Kibar al-Ulama fi Masr or Pakistan, and then you're praying somewhere else. Like, well, a million people already pray for him, but here in this case, they're extenuating circumstances where it would be a legitimate uh, salat al-Ghayb. So mm -hmm. I think that we we have the ability to really mine the treasure. Uh, of our religious teachings to address this situation in ways that are authentic, but also give uh, the believers an opportunity to feel that although they're doing some things that aren't normal because of the temporary emergency measures, mm -hmm. they still have some uh, uh, origin mm -hmm. in the prophetic practice. And I think that's heartening for people. Mm -hmm. Before we came online, we were talking about um, one of the projects you were involved in, which is, it's interesting because Ramadan is the time when we have Taraweeh. The Taraweeh in the West has generally been um, cancelled, and the people that lead the Taraweeh are the Imams and the Hufad. But we also have a phenomenon where they're being either sacked or going into unemployment because of the fact that mosques don't have the funds, you know, that's, this is what the claim is, that the mosques no longer have the funds to fund them. What does that tell us about how the community deals with its religious leaders, its imams, its khufal? Where on the one hand, they're crying about the fact there's no taraweeh, but on the other hand, they're laying them off without, you know, what seems to be little thought into the fact that these people need to, need to be supported in the community. Yeah, I think it, it, to the extent that it happens, and I, th I think it's, it's fair to mention, there are many, many places where this hasn't happened where the community is very considerate for the imam and respects the status of the imam and continue to provide a salary and continue to provide uh, financial support. But to the extent that it does happen, I, I think it just uh, shows the misplaced priorities that can sometimes uh, seep into uh, those who assume leadership in our communities. And so the, the priority is this is your spiritual leader and not just uh, a, a mundane employee to be uh, fired or paid some minimum salary uh, at, at will. That no, this is the spiritual leader of the community. And therefore, this person should be taken care of uh, in the very best possible manner. And as long as there's even 10 or 12 people who could come together to ensure that that person continues to be able to live and provide for their family, then that's a communal responsibility. I, I wouldn't say as far to kifaya, but I, uh, you can make an argument. So I wouldn't say un, unequivocally, taking care of the imam as far to kifaya, Someone has to do it. So if the masjid doesn't do it, and if the committee in the masjid doesn't do it, then a group of individuals in the community, regardless of the position of the masjid, has to do it. Because uh, teaching the children, leading the prayer, these are all kifayat. And so if the masjid doesn't undertake their responsibility, and then 10 or 12 families in the community who are more enlightened shouldn't just sit back and let uh, the, the imam suffer 
they should get together and fulfill the kifaya if we elevate it to that level. So I'm not saying it is necessarily, but I, I think any of us can make an argument where we can say that taking care of the imam, the spiritual leader of the community who's teaching our children the essentials of their religion and the Quran is a far kifaya. And that being the case, it's not the responsibility solely and exclusively of the masjid. It's the responsibility of the community. And so if the masjid doesn't do it, uh, owing to their callousness or their short-sightedness, or, or not callousness is too accusatory, but owing to their ignorance or their short-sightedness, then let a group of families in the community who aren't, alhamdulillah, many of some people, as you say, have been sacked. We prefer laid off or furloughed uh, here in the United States. We're not, as, we're not as masterful in the use of the language as our, our brothers and sisters there. But uh, that, that, like we said, this is an opportunity for us to step up. And so if a group of families say, look, the imam, they, they, they sacked the imam. <laughs> so they say they sacked the imam, and you know that. What are you going to do? You're gonna, you still have your job. You still have your income. Some of our medical professionals and others are getting, on top of their normal income, they're getting hazardous duty pay on top of that, or a lot of overtime pay. So they actually have more money than they normally have. So let a group of those people get together and take care of the imam until the crisis passes and the masjid can once again assume that responsibility. I've got, I've got a question about um, scholars and, and the response of scholars in the context of COVID-19 generally, just in the world. I want to know some of your kind of thoughts about how this kind of almost unanimity in the Muslim world about cancelling congregational prayers, which came about quite quickly. The Umrahs were cancelled. Um, in, in the West, generally, there's no congregational prayers. There's no Jumu'ah prayers. There's, no, there's not going to be probably any Tarawih prayers as well. Are you surprised by, given the way the Muslims always disagree about things and there's always argumentation and difference of opinion, and people would say it was good to have a degree of difference of opinion, are you surprised by the degree to which there's been some sort of unanimity and consensus in the communities among scholars, generally? No, I'm not surprised because a scholar knows the breadth of the religion. So a common person who's uneducated, <laughs> oh, we have to go to the masjid. But a scholar knows in the face of the emergency, and then there's prophetic practice. And even in a heavy rainstorm, <laughs> the Prophet ﷺ told the people to, to pray in their houses. And this is something Ibn Abbas mentions, he heard, he ordered his mu'adhan to say to the people, Sallu fi buyutikum, pray in your houses because of the mud and the slosh. So if you're going, if, if the Prophet and the, the companions after him, radiallahu anhum, may Allah be pleased with them, ordered the believers to pray in their house of mud, it's even more appropriate that the leaders tell their people to stay at home, pray at home, when there's a life-threatening situation. And we've seen what happened in Italy, what happened in Spain, what's happening there in the United Kingdom, what happened in New York. Like New York, a quarter of all the people died in the United States in the metropolitan New York area. And I know a lot of healthcare providers, my wife's from New York City, I grew up in Connecticut. Right now I'm in Connecticut on hiatus uh, from Zaytuna uh, temporarily. Uh, so it's been, it's the, the, the hospitals were overwhelmed. People could not get funeral homes to bury uh, their deceased people. And so the bodies are piling up in the morgues because the, normally a funeral home is burying two or three people a week. Now they have to bury 80 or 90 people. And, and so the, 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 the situation that could have developed if we just let things go normal, potentially, especially in more crowded areas, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's to think about it is mind boggling. And then you think about 
the situation in India, where the, the meeting in uh, New Delhi at the Tabriki Jamaat headquarters, and now they trace the spread of the diseases to all the towns and villages where the attendees met. That's not the only reason it's spreading there. So I'm not trying to give any credibility to the, the racist uh, and, and anti-Muslim propaganda of, of the BJP, RIS, and their loyalists, but it's a reality. And the same thing uh, in, in uh, Malaysia, where most of the coronavirus spread was traced to a single large Islamic gathering. So now you have Umrah and Hajj, uh, Umrah proceeding as normal. Millions of people coming through. Everyone gets sick anyway from whatever spreading. And we call it hajitis. So everyone gets hajitis anyway. Now you throw coronavirus into the mix. And then they're going all over the world when they return. People are gathering in the masjid. And, and here in, in Connecticut, in New York, uh, Connecticut, Southern Connecticut is they're very wealthy suburbs who are hedge funds managers and all these rich people in New York City. The early spread was trade. There was a party. These socialites had their party in uh, a, a town called Westport, Connecticut. And that's really the epicenter of coronavirus spread here in the state of Connecticut. They have, there were 100, I think, 102 people in attendance at that party. They started to trace all their contacts. Then they found one person at that party the next day, went to a party in New York City where there were 420 people. And they just, they, one guy at that party was from South Africa. When he landed, he was sick with coronavirus. Now he brings it to South Africa. And so not doing anything to mitigate this situation could have potentially, I'm not saying absolute certainty, only Allah knows the rape. And people point to Sweden, look, they didn't do nothing. They seem to be all right. But there, there are a lot of factors uh, uh, because of that. But you, you, you look at one of the most advanced healthcare systems in the world, some of the healthiest people in the world, uh, one of the lowest obesity rates in the world. So maybe they're doing uh, good. But you go to countries where there collapsed health, health or care system. There are five countries in Africa that don't have a single ventilator. And so you, you go to these places and you don't try to mitigate. And then you have large congregations, Tarawi and uh, Jumu'ah and other large gatherings. The situation could easily get out of control. So any, in any case, Scholars recognize that and recognize, as I said, there's a, there's a precedent in the prophetic practice of telling people to pray at home because of mud. We don't want you sloshing and slipping in the mud and dirtying your clothes up. So what if the, the threat to keep you home is the potential of, of a, a deadly disease that, that spreads very easily uh, that it, it, its uh, uh, pathogenic nature is one times greater than SARS, SARS-1. There's no immune immunity, and there's no vaccine yet. And so I think recognizing that many scholars, most scholars, virtually all scholars, recognize this is a legitimate reason to have people stay home. Now, yeah, if, I, yeah, yeah, sorry. A skeleton crew, maybe you say, all right, and, and those madahib where the congregational uh, prayer is fard kifaya, maybe the imam and two or three volunteers with great social distancing could fulfill the kifaya. That's a, a case you can make. But generally speaking, I think that the danger was recognized in the general public and the generality of the believers were told to take the measures that the healthcare professionals were recommending. I'm going to go on to some of the questions that have been posted up. There's one question about um, the world is so lost. How is my, is my sound, is the sound quality okay? Very good, very good. Okay, because I have a professional mic I forgot to hook up. Okay, we'll keep it like this. Okay, so, so there's a person who's asking, the world is now so lost, how can we bring 
um, social and economic justice to the world. Given that I think everything is up in the air, things about environment, environment, social justice, and all these kind of issues that people were, you know, making prominent are now just secondary. How do we re recapture those issues? Yeah, I think they're secondary amongst those who want to go back to the old destructive ways of doing things. But I think the uh, environmental movement has never gotten a boost. Unfortunately, it's under these circumstances like it has from the COVID virus. Many people in India and Pakistan and Karachi and, and, and Lahore and Delhi and Mumbai are breathing clean air for the first time in their life. Uh, many people are seeing the Himalayas from 200 kilometers out for the first time in their life. Like, what's that? Oh, those are the Himalayas. Where'd they come from? They were always there. You just had this cloud of nitric acid and sulfuric acid and carbon monoxide and or covering them up. And, and so I think those kind of realities uh, are making people reassess Yesterday was Earth Day. At one time, Earth Day was the largest uh, political mobilization in the history of the United States. Like over 10 million people. I remember I was in elementary school and they were mobilized for Earth Day and there were, the teachers were, were instilling environmental consciousness into us. And I think there, there's never been Yesterday, uh, one of the major American banks uh, announced they were going to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, and so I, I think that this is a great opportunity for us to argue. Two months ago, if you said the Western social economic political systems have failed, they would accuse you of being with ISIS. Like, oh, he's a radical Muslim, they want to take over. Now, if you say that, you have a chorus of people who aren't Muslim joining you. Like this last minute requisitioning, all of these ways to squeeze profit out of people have less, left us ill-prepared to deal with this kind of crisis. And it's time for us to reassess. And so I think this is a, an excellent time for us to begin to introduce uh, the, the whole uh, idea of you mentioned marginalized communities suffering disproportionately because they're crammed into the crowd, most crowded, densely populated areas. They're exposed to the, they're, they're, the, the Heathrow airports or the, uh, the, the major uh, highways go through their community. They're exposed to the, the, the uh, fumes and uh, exhaust from the rush hour traffic. They're exposed to the uh, tremendous amount of uh, toxins that are spewing from the airplanes as they accelerate or uh, ascend to higher elevation. So these things, uh, they're exposed to the, to the oldest water systems with the lead in the pipes. And so these contribute to the underlying conditions that make them more prone to, to fatalities during the likes of this coronavirus. So I think the, this is the time to talk about these issues. If ever there were a time, this is the time. And I think that we have to take advantage of that. And this is totally consistent with the teachings of our religion. If Allah said, that corruption has appeared in land and sea, and there's many different interpretations for that, but we just take it literally. The land and the sea have been corrupted. Based on what humans have done, what human hands have brought about. To give them just a taste of what they've done. So this coronavirus is a taste. Uh, my mother-in-law, she's 88 years old. She lives with us. She's petrified. She's gone out of the house once or twice over the last month just to get some fresh air and sunshine. And so uh, one of uh, people we know very well, their grandmother got it. And her, their grandmother is 92. And my mother-in-law is like, she's saying, oh, she's going to die, poor soul. She thought coronavirus, if you're over 80, is a death sentence. So I said, listen, no. Only 15% of 
are known to die. That means 85 of, out of every 100 survive. It's not a death sentence. And, and alhamdulillah, uh, in a few days, uh, this person's grandmother was much, much better. I said to my mother, I see that's, it's not a death sentence. So to give them a taste, generally children are asymptomatic. They get it, but they have no symptoms. We could probably count on our two, two hands, the number of children under the age of 12 who have passed away globally from this virus. And so Allah gives us a taste, but if we don't, if we don't turn to the path, back to the path of divine guidance, if we don't turn back to the path of, of consideration for the other creatures we share this planet with, if we don't consider the damage we've done because of our old ways of doing things with our pollution, with our, the plastic being dumped into the ocean, the disappearance of our fish stocks, 94% of our seeds have been wiped out, biodiversity is severely threatened. If we don't begin to address these issues, what Allah Ta'ala might send us next time will make this look like the common cold. And there, there are 1,500, I think, 1,400 known coronaviruses, but they don't trans uh, mutate to, to humans. But Allah could unleash one of those that'll make this, this COVID-19 look like the, like the common cold. So we need to start a conversation with, with our neighbors, with our, our fellow travelers and our societies about changing the way that we do things. Here in the United States, we just are getting, with this latest uh, stimulus package, massive, the, the fossil fuel industry has always been subsidized by the government. Now there are massive bailouts because the, the price of petrol is so low, uh, they're, they're losing money. The stocks collapsed even below zero, negative, first time ever for, for some of the oil companies. So that money could be put into clean energy as opposed to our governments doing everything in their power to stop the development. Government subsidized development of clean energy. And so these are the kinds of issues I think we have to raise uh, so that we can return to a better way of doing things and not return to here comes the pollution back in the cities of Africa, Asia, North America the pollution's back, uh, the fish, they, they say now the canals in Venice, it's not a murky grayish brown water, the water's blue, they spotted dolphins, the fish are coming back into the canals. So if we go right back to driving the fish away, killing off the fish, then, I, you know, I, I fear, I fear for us as a species. So a lot of the questions are all about activism and how it will change in, in the in, in the post-COVID um, context. But I think our program is more about the the, the, the Ramadan with yeah, the kind of I, lockdown. I think, I think the two are linked though, because yeah. Ramadan and other times during the day, we should have our daily time. Ramadan is a month where we enrich our soul. <laughs> and to succeed in the realm of activism, Activism cannot be a strictly secular endeavor. We raise our voices and organize and protest against this or that or the other evil in the world or organize to try to change those evils. We'll only go so far if we are relying on ourselves. And so we have to rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And times like Ramadan bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They help us to conquer our nafs, they help us to suppress those, those negative tendencies that we have. They help us to elevate from that nafs al-bahimiyya, shahwaniyya, amaratun bisu' lawama, mulhama, mutma'inna, etc. Then what we say when we speak as activists and what we do has a far greater chance of, of succeeding. One of our uh, scholars, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Amin Kurdi, in a book called uh, Tanwir al-Qulub, he divides it into four parts. Most, many of our books, they have three parts. They have Aqidah, they have Fiqh, they have 
tasawwuf. So Murshid and Mu'in for the Malikis, Az-Zubad for the Shafi'is. I don't know what the Hanafis have, but, <laughs> but that's the usual breakdown. He has those three, then he has Dawah. And he puts Dawah first, and he says something very beautiful. And he, he, says, he, he, he mentions how Dawah cannot be separated from the purification of our hearts. And he says, يعني, and so when you attain, uh, attain personal illumination and your heart and soul are illuminated, then the words you speak find their way into the hearts. And so the activism and Ramadan, they're connected because hopefully, inshallah, the, the purification and the, the forgiveness and the spiritual elevation that occurs from praying and fasting and reading the Quran, those things are going to illuminate our souls. And when our souls are illuminated, what we say and do is going to have far, far more greater, far greater efficacy in the world. I think, I think that, that answer answers perhaps half of the questions that we've been given about um, social activism because I think that point that you've made is actually the, the clear differentiator between how we as a community should deal with these social issues which is the internal spiritual nourishment then leads to an articulation of what is correct and there's a question actually about Muhammad Ali rahmatullahi and he was I mean if everybody's memory of him was that he captured the the the, the kind of the age he was living in the time he was living in and the kind of difficulties that people were going through. He was very much on the ball, even more than academics, even more than scholars. And, you know, and it was a fair question to ask, but what do you think he would um, tell people to do? Um, obviously the question is for you as an individual, but being a close associate of him and also spending time with him, very close to him during the last years of his life, what do you think he would make of how the Muslim community is dealing with this, this situation? You know, I, I think he, he will be very pleased because as you know, he, he suffered uh, an, injury, uh, an illness that was closely related in the opinion of many to him uh, continuing to box after he should have hung up his gloves. Mm -hmm. So most people say after Foreman, you got the title back, that should have been it. But after Foreman, there was a brutal battle with Joe Frazier, the so-called thriller in Manila. And then you had several fights where at the end, Larry Holmes, he's just overmatched. And, and so I think he would have appreciated people protecting themselves from future illness or possibly death by taking the advice of healthcare professionals in light of the fact that that's something he didn't do. Because there were healthcare professionals, even his own uh, uh, corner man, uh, Ferdy Procheco, he's like, I can't do any more fights. You shouldn't be fighting. Doctor, he was a doctor, Dr. Ferdy Procheco. And so I think Ali would appreciate uh, the, the concern and the considerations of the healthcare professionals encourage encourage the community to protect themselves from the worst case scenario. Like the, the traffic sign isn't there the, 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 on the four corners saying stop because every time a car goes through that intersection, there's going to be an accident. The traffic sign is there to prevent that one fatal accident that will inevitably happen sooner or later. Mm. And so we stop every time. So does that mean everyone who stops, if they had gone through this, the traffic sign is going to be in an accident? No, mm. but it's to prevent that one. And so these are preventative measures. Most of us, when it's all over, going, I didn't get sick. You know, why do we have to do this? It was to save those people who inevitably would have gotten sick and those, that percentage who would have inevitably died and that percentage who would have inevitably overwhelmed our 
healthcare system denying resources to others. So I think that Ali would have been very appreciative of, of the response of the community, despite the ensuing hardships and despite the, uh, uh, the discomfort that's created in the hearts of some of the believers. Mm. And I think I want to wrap up. It's, it's probably a, a question that's related to the experience of a lot of individuals out there, which is that they're re, re, reassessing where they are in their lives. So lots of people are taking a step back. They've been forced to step, take a step back, sorry, in terms of their, their professional careers. They've been forced to spend time, as you said, in the house. Sometimes people are never in the house, never in the house. So they're reassessing how they are with their families, with their work colleagues, also their projection in terms of their own profession and their kind of training. Even students at universities are also um, thinking about whether this is really what they want to do. I think once we come out of this um, whole um, era of COVID, do you think the Muslim community will come out with some kind of soul searching, giving them a new direction in terms of where they want to go? You're talking about environmentalism and social activism based upon spiritual strength. Do you think, do you feel that the community has within it the capacity to, you know, tread a new path? Um, or does it need to do that? Uh, absolutely. But like all things, it's not going to be in the entire community. We're not a monolith. Mm -hmm. So most people are going to go back to their old jobs uh, because that's all they have. Uh, but you're going to have those visionaries and you're going to have those uh, very idealistic uh, sorts who are going to be a minority. But it only takes, as Arnold Toynbee alerted us to, it only takes a, a small creative minority. And so I think you're going to have that creative minority emerging amongst the Muslims and amongst uh, folks and people in the wider community that are going to call for a different way, that are going to call for altering some of the habits that we have, that are going to encourage uh, uh, more environmental responsibility. One of the reasons for this problem uh, is that in, in China, so much uh, forest and animal habitat has been destroyed that the bats are coming into such close contact with the people that these viruses are spreading. Uh, so I think we have to begin to reconsider uh, a lot of things. And I think you will have amongst the Muslims, as is the case with other communities, that creative minority that's going to call for a different way. And I think it's the responsibility to the others in the community if they can't uh, do it themselves to at least support them and uh, encourage them and not discourage them. So I think you're going to have uh, a, a variated response uh, based on where people at, are at in the community. And, but you will have those who call for a new way. And I think it's, it's our responsibility to try to amplify their voices, to try to help them however we can. And uh, we'll see what Allah has in store for us. Inshallah, inshallah. I, I, I was, when I was at university, one of the professors, I was studying Chinese politics, and he actually mentioned in passing, this was about 20, over 20 years ago, he mentioned in passing that um, the wet markets in China developed as a result of the, the Great Leap Forward, which was in the 50s and 60s, the Chinese Communist Party tried yeah. to basically take away the land from the, the farmers and, and make it into communes. It led to starvation. People needed to feed themselves and they ended up eating things that they normally didn't include in the Chinese diet. And even at that time, he just passed it off as, as a comment until I read this you know, about a month ago. And it shows the interconnectedness of the way that people try to engineer society based upon what they feel is justice and truth. And the activism sometimes does, in fact, go wrong. And, and that kind of creating justice actually leads to more problems than it actually tends to solve. And I think I, that's what we... Yeah, I think justice, the foundation of justice is in the teachings of our Prophet and the revelation of the and the revelation of Quran. When it's a, a response, an emotional response to either personal or communal 
circumstances that's not thought through carefully, I think it, it can very easily lead to more problems than it solves. And I think that's one of the experiences, not just of uh, the, the communist uh, experiment in China and the specifically the great leap forward, the cultural revolution under the direction of Mao Zedong, but in, in other societies, I think you, you see a lot of uh, automobiles. If, if automobiles and the ecological destructiveness of the oil industry, which fuels, pun intended, the, the automobile industry, if that were thought through, I think we would, as humans would have considered other ways to enhance our trend. I mean, how, how much forest has been destroyed paving the earth? How much forest, how much farmland has been destroyed? How many animals have been massacred on our highways since the advent of the automobile? Now, how many people have died from asthma or other uh, respiratory diseases because of the automobile? How much animal ha habitat has been destroyed? Uh, the demand for oil so greatly enhanced by the automobile leading to the massive tankers and the accidents that have occurred. How much of that could have been avoided if we had decided, thought through the long-term consequences or not withheld the consequences that we knew and shared that publicly? So global warming, right? ExxonMobil did the study and like, oh, we can't release this. People will stop, stop buying our product. They knew global warming was coming. And now, now the ice shelves are melting in Greenland. And sure, it's happened before, but they were natural. The, as the theory goes, a massive meteor slammed into the earth and the shock killed all the dinosaurs. You know, the, the, the ice age came and the saber-toothed tigers and mastodons and woolly mammoths died off. That's all natural. Now it's human caused and it's accelerating at, at rates that, that are frightening. We see it in the weather. I'm sure you witness it. This year, April, we've had snow and cold. The last uh, two nights here where I'm at, it was 27 degrees Fahrenheit, 26 degrees Fahrenheit, 26, 27. And we're almost in May. We had a significant snowstorm four or five days ago. In February, the temperature in the daytimes, and many, I could count on my one hand the, the times it dipped below freezing, and it was, it was raining all month, with very little snow. Every snowstorm eventually turned into a rainstorm. It's unprecedented. I'm, I'm up in the mountains, and you can see the trees dying. You can see, the 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 effect on wildlife and and so we we witness the the consequences of our folly and so it behooves us to step back to be patient to analyze think deeply about things before we come forward with our proposed solutions and let them be rooted in sound research intellectual practices and not in our personal grievances and our personal pain, which is real. No one's pain is to be dismissed, but how do we deal with pain? And as a Muslim, how do we as Muslims, we're talking in a Muslim context, how do we deal with pain? And what, are, what is the reward if we patiently endure some pain, be that whatever ever, ever level it's at, as long as it's not destructive to us? What is the reward for that? As opposed to not having any reward for dealing with pain, and I'm talking more trauma. It might be historic, communal, not, not immediately a deal, dealing with that, and then having no prospect of any sort of reward. Then the only path forward is very strident, zero-sum activism, because there's no hope of any reward for that for that forbearance. But as Muslims, we have the hope for that reward. So as a result, we work, 
we do our best to change those things wrong in the world. If we, if we said otherwise, we would not be following the prophetic advice. We can define munkar in, in certain ways, but let's say generally something wrong, try to change it. But it's not a zero-sum proposition. You change it or you perish. You change it or you fail. No, if you can change it with your hand, change it. If you can't speak out against it, if you can't hate it with your heart, that's the lowest level of faith. And so it's not always kind of a kamikaze, I know I'm not going to succeed, but I'm going to be a martyr situation. Sometimes it's just hate it in your heart mm -hmm. until the opportunity comes to speak out. Speak out until the opportunity comes to do something with your hand to change it. So there are levels. And alhamdulillah, our religion is sophisticated, it's nuanced, and it's, it doesn't present a black and white, zero-sum uh, way of looking at the world, looking at the justices, injustices in the world. It, prevent, it presents a very nuanced view that if we tap into it, it's not only empowering, but it's practical. And being and and at the end of the day, it's it's myself. Like I can I I have to ask myself, what have I done within myself to contribute to a better world? Mm -hmm. So the change starts with me, and then it it extends outward and outward and outward until that one drop of rain becomes a mighty river. But if each and every one of us isn't concerned with that one drop of rain that we constitute, we're never going to have the mighty river. We're going to have drops falling in isolation somewhere in the forest, and they never link up to form a mighty stream. Allah give us tawfiq. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair That idea of, of individuals becoming an ocean, this is something that I syllabus, we, we worked on this project for the last um, couple of weeks, the Ramadan Virtual Hub, which is basically bringing people things to, at their fingertip that creates that virtual community in the absence of the mosque, which is, as I said before, hidden voices. We're doing khutbahs virtually, we'll be doing um, Quran tafsir lessons, iftar lessons, kids programs for young children, and um, people are marginalized. I think that is really, I think, where we can all come together. The strength of us together is far greater than the strength of the individual themselves. So, um, Imam Zaid, it has been an absolute pleasure for the people of Scotland and the people of the UK and also people, I can see a lot of people watching um, further afield um, to listen to and to see you. And shall we, we hope to see you um, in real life, uh, hopefully we pray to Allah that the conditions that we're in are alleviated and they bring us far more greatness. And it's and like the scholars to say that the, the, the night is darkest just before dawn, just before the sun breaks. And this is what we hope that you people like yourself do come back to this side of the pond and, and graces with your um, presence, inshallah ta'ala. So heartfelt thanks from ourselves for, to you for joining us. I think people, based on the comments, it's been very enjoyable and beneficial for people in a very difficult time. And we pray to Allah that he keeps you in good health and your family and your mother-in-law, everybody in good health. And we ask you to also pray for us um, for our good um, health as well here. Jazakallah khair. Bless everyone. Just hide the iron brew and I might consider coming. I can't <laughs> do the sugar anymore. Just hide the iron brew somewhere and inshallah, we'll see what we can do, inshallah. Barakallah. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.